Well, it was Super Bowl 54 opening night in Miami at Marlins Park. I was there as the Chiefs and the 49ers met with the media. We'll hear from 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan and how the start of his NFL coaching career as a quality control assistant on John Gruden's staff helped shape what he's doing this year in the Super Bowl. And, of course, the event included a moment of silence for Kobe Bryant, who was on the minds of all the coaches and players on Monday. Meanwhile, the Lightning lost in overtime 3-2 to to Dallas, both goals by Steven Stamkos. Played well, but didn't get the two points. Baseball also is going to have possible some changes coming up soon. They will mic the umpires during replay review. That's under discussion. And how would you like the DH in the National League? One report says it could happen as early as next season. We've got all that and more on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. It was a long one for me, uh, Steve. I had the uh, the pleasure of driving down, of course, to Super Bowl 54 in Miami. Still very early. Not a lot of people um, just quite settled in just yet. Uh, if you're coming this way, prepare for some some traffic jams. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you – I'm not that familiar with South Florida traffic. Um, it's usually on bad a normal every time day. I've been down there. but Yeah, on a normal day, it's a little rough, especially if you're trying to get over the causeway to the beach, which is where the um, you know where a lot of the festivities are at the Miami Beach Convention Center. That's where the NFL experience is. There'll be a lot of people heading down that way, as well as the, the media room. Radio Row is at the convention center as well. And that's just sort of just now getting underway on Monday. But as, as the week goes on, of course, there'll be a ton of people through there. And um, and it'll get more congested. All peddling their products. Yeah, every every yeah. Home, right. sh- home shopping network radio this week. It's incredible. It really is. Um, yeah, I, I mean, th- there is literally anything from. I think I, I, I I'm trying to think if I I don't want to place the player. Was it Dan Maria? Somebody's doing slippers this year. Then there's a guy you know has some restaurant chain. I mean, there's all. There's just all kinds of products. So tell us about the time you played in the Super Bowl. Well, these slippers, they really made my night comfortable the yeah. night before the Super Bowl. and That's right. That's kind of how the answer is. Hey, Dan Marino. Week, yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, you talk about your loss to San Francisco and your only Super Bowl. And then and then now what are you peddling? The slippers? Yeah, the slippers. But it's, um, you know, it, it's this game grows bigger and bigger every year. And, of course, they had opening night at Marlins Park, which I had never been to, certainly not for a baseball game or any game. I'm I'm not fond of where it is. It looks like a gorgeous ballpark, although it was dark because they had you know cordoned off a good portion of it for this event, where players came out and essentially were on stage and then uh, went to risers and and uh, we had a chance to talk to them. But um, yeah, it's just kind of a I, mean, I can see where you'd have to have a pretty good ball club to get a ton of people to go down there um, every single night. Traffic again, you know, hard to get in, hard to get out. They do have a parking garage. I'll give them that. Um, but yeah, just, um, not, yeah, just, not a good a location, little, beautiful park, not a good location. Yeah. Just a little awkward. Anyway, I don't want to trash Miami Super Bowl. I think it's going to be much better in Tampa Bay. We'll talk to Rob Higgins about that probably this week. I'm sure. Uh, in the meantime, you know, they started this thing as you would, as you would expect. We're only, you know, what were we, about 24, 48 hours after the news broke about Kobe Bryant and his 13 year old daughter dying. Uh, in the helicopter crash in Calabasas, along with um, seven other people, uh, some of them teammates and parents uh, of of the basketball team uh, that she played on. But, you know, the event began with a moment of silence. And then, look, it's heavy on the minds and, and, um, you know, 
and, and thoughts of these players and coaches. Uh, I mean, you have a California team to begin with. You have the 49ers. Um, and so, obviously, anybody on the West Coast, really nationwide or even worldwide, so familiar with Kobe Bryant, but particularly in California where you see him and hear him playing all the time or did during his 20-year career. Um, you know, guys like Richard Sherman, um, you know, had, had a lot of things to say. Tyrone, Tyrone Matthew said it was shocking, you know, to say the least, unimaginable. I mean, uh, Kyle Shanahan, a lot of these guys were asleep on the flight. Uh, they had left San Francisco. Uh, he said when he awoke, he heard the news, and, and it was just, you know, it was crushing. Sherman Sherman was uh, – he kind of put it in perspective. He said, you know, I – uh, I, he knew him and, and um, sort of was a mentor to him a little bit uh, in business and other things. And he said, you know, it was it was awful and he felt terrible. And, you know, it was unimaginable pain for that family, uh, certainly Vanessa's wife and her, her three daughters. But he said, you know, all day Monday I was kind of like that too. And then sometime Monday afternoon I kind of snapped out of it and realized that that Kobe would want me to stop babying myself and just go out and play this freaking game as hard as I can. And so that kind of snapped them out of it. And that that truly is what Kobe would probably say to people, um, especially professional athletes, that, you know, you got to move on and, um, you know, don't feel sorry for me or, or yourself or whatever. But it is still, you know, the sports world is, is really, uh, really in shock. I was listening to Dan Patrick. I mean, he had, you know, so many people – call in Reggie Miller and Jerry West and uh, and put their perspective on it. You know, Reggie was like uh, a mentor to Kobe as well. They they shared the same agent when Kobe signed as a 17-year-old and Jerry West, you know, found him, mm-hmm. uh, drafted him out of high – well, didn't draft him out of high school, made the trade actually. Yep. Uh, traded Vladi Divac to Carolina and, and ended up with Kobe. Um, but he would eat dinner at his house. He couldn't drive. He couldn't sign a contract without – his parents' uh, permission and, and that sort of thing, um, but it, it was it was weighing heavily. You know, these are professional athletes that um, certainly are, are fans of, of of other sports, and and you know, Kobe uh, to all of us was a was a superstar. And you know, again, just just the uh, the sadness there is uh, with the loss of his thirteen year old daughter uh, as well. So I heard I heard Frank Clark talking. He grew up in Bakersfield which is outside yes. Los Angeles and, and said, mm-hmm. you know, he had kind of had a troubled childhood and, and it was a rough one and he would yeah. use Kobe as inspiration and you yeah. know, that Mamba mentality. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was kind of an idol to him and he's, you know, he's 26 years old now. So, you know, when Kobe started, you know, started playing, he was probably just being born or around that time. So, you know, he grew yeah. up with Kobe there and it's, you know, that's, you know, the, that rare athlete that transcends everything. Yeah, you know it's you know it means a lot to the sports fans around the world and and you know beyond just Laker fans and basketball fans, but to the athletes themselves, those guys, I, I think it's it's even more jarring and shocking because you know those are the ones they're looking up to. I mean, the fans look up yeah. to like all these players and and mm-hmm. you know love them all, and it's great. But you know when when you're a Kobe or that type of player, when everyone else, when everyone in your sports looking up to you, it it, it makes that even more shocking. Yeah, and I and I think too, you know, we we tend to you know forget that these are these guys. This is this was their generation. This was their Michael Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of us uh, remember Michael, and and of course there was a very short time that um, that they competed against each other when when Kobe was very very young, 
Um, but certainly, you know, he emulated Michael. But for those who didn't watch Michael play, this generation of, of athlete that's now at the Super Bowl and playing in the NBA, um, their guy, you know, their 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 superstar was was Kobe Bryant, and um, you know, just the singular focus that he had, the work ethic. Um, you know, I was listening to uh, some guys talk about him. I don't know if it's Jerry West or, or Reggie Miller, you know, talking about how he was a he was a very gifted athlete, but he wasn't the best athlete. You know, he wasn't the best shooter. He wasn't the best, you know, uh, you know, guy with handle. I mean, he 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 taught himself and improved so much just by working at it. You know what I mean? I mean, he'd set up chairs in the off season to dribble around. You know, and it wasn't it wasn't just stick. I mean, he he actually did that and. Um, worked on every aspect of his game until, until it became, you know, what he was, which was, um, you know, the best best player of his of his generation of his era, and and so, you know, from that standpoint, I think a lot of athletes derive sort of that work ethic and that drive and that that focus to make themselves better. I heard Stephen um, A. And, Smith tell the story of I think it was after a playoff series that the Lakers lost, mm-hmm. and. They got on the plane afterwards, went back to L.A., and Kobe went to the gym for three hours. It's unbelievable, isn't it? You know, the season was over, but he wasn't happy with his performance. I don't know if it was missed free throws or whatever. I don't remember exactly what he said. I've heard so but many he stories gonna today. Go, but he was going to go work but out. But he went for three hours in the gym and was shooting because he yeah. wasn't happy with his performance. And, you know, the season was over. He wasn't like that he was going to have a game the next day or the next week. Right. You know, that's just that mentality of, you know, it wasn't good enough. I'm going to work harder. Well, and he even after he was done playing, I I was listening to this interview uh, that they played back from after his retirement with uh, on with Dan Patrick, I think, and and you know he calls in and he's asked, hey, by the way, what time did you get up this morning? He goes, oh, about three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> They're like, what? He goes, look, my body just wakes up that way. I've been doing this for so many years. He's like, what do you do? Well, I, you know, I get a lift in and he even said then, he goes, you know, a couple of days a week, my, my, you know, my middle daughter, um, she'll get up and work out with me. You know, I mean, she was so driven. Yeah. I read a lot of stories too, uh, about, about her. And, um, I don't know if you saw it, but UConn had a number two Jersey on the bench and they did, I think the, um, the eight second, um, I don't know. Whether they took the the eight second you know, backcourt violation, you know, backcourt some of the teams violation. Did that. Yeah. yeah, I think they both teams did that. Uh, it was UConn against Tennessee, I believe. Um, and Gino, you know, Ariama was was just distraught and you know crying. And, and this is where she wanted to go. Make no mistake. I mean, you know, Reggie Miller tried to get her to go to UCLA, but she was going to to UConn. Um, and people talked about you know sort of like she would have taken you know his his stardom um and and his drive and it would have been such a great player that she was she was focused on being in the WNBA that was that was her goal and there's no doubt that she would have probably made that and what that would have done you know uh to have their own mamba right in mm-hmm. in the WNBA and what it would have done for that league and for women's sports and and of well, course Kobe was so so involved in that they've talked about her drive and, mm-hmm. you know, so often people would come up to Kobe going, oh, man, you need to have a son so you can have another yeah. Mamba. And she's like, oh, yeah. excuse me, I'm, I I'm got the next this. Mamba. I got this. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, I that's kind of this. her attitude and her drive. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. 
you know, just taken way too early for that. I know. No, it's just it's, uh, it's anyone with children, even if you don't. But I mean, you know, those of us, you know, there's something special too about fathers and daughters, and 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 I mean, my wife is a very she's a very sports oriented you know girl. I mean, it's one of the things I like about her. Um, she was a sports editor in the Chicago Tribune, and um, and she. You know, her father just loved soccer. He was from Greece, um, you know, watched hockey when they, you know, they came over, um, you know, and lived in Chicago. And they're black. he was a Blackhawks fan. And, of course, the Bulls got really good then. And, and so the way she connected, like many daughters with their fathers, was through sports. And so she became a real sports fan, and she knows as much about it as I do. Um, and And I think... You know, it it sort of was that way. Now, now, you know, fathers and daughters connect over a lot of things. It doesn't have to be sports, but if you're if you're in the business as as you know, many of us are, and, and certainly you know, Kobe, um, you know, it, it's just a natural thing. I was talking to Trent Dilfer, whose daughters played uh, played volleyball. He's got one that's getting married in a couple of weeks, um, and and that was just the thing, right? That's that's their connection with their dad. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's just, it's profoundly sad. And, and, and I, I know the relationship I have with my girls and, and you can see them, you know, constantly, they're big lightning fans and they, uh, they want to talk about the lightning and it's like, Oh, are the lightning on TV? And, and, you know, I don't really know how, how big a true fans they are, but they know I'm going to have it on. And so their connection with me is through sports and asking questions about football and baseball and, and, and their favorite sport right now is hockey. So, you know, it's just neat to see. And um, and you think about those things when uh, when that happens. So heavy hearts for sure uh, in this backdrop of what is a celebration of the NFL and, you know, Super Bowl 54. It's it's. I think this is going to be a, a terrific matchup. I don't know how the game is going to go. I mean, we've had a lot of close games of late. Um, you know, it's a, it's a classic defense against offense matchup. I'll tell you what. You know, getting to to stand there in 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 front of Patrick Mahomes, he's really impressive. It's hard to believe that this guy has only played now three seasons in the NFL and really only played two of them. Mm-hmm. You know, because he sat behind Alex Smith his first year. But boy, you know, you can see the pedigree. Of course, you know his father Pat was pitched to Major League Baseball for years and years, and. Um, you know he was he was around so many great players and and he was a baseball player himself of course and a really good one uh and, you know drafted at one point by the tigers but you know just that just that confidence you know um how to how to handle himself he he's well beyond his years and of course we know what a weapon he is on the football field and what he's already accomplished with the 50 touchdowns and the most valuable player award a year ago and here he is year 2 in the super bowl and he's here with Andy Reid, and a lot of the players mentioned Reid, uh, especially on Monday night, about how much they would love to win this game, and for themselves, obviously, but you know, you know what what it would mean to Andy, and you know, one of the winningest coaches in NFL history. He's gone 15 years between Super Bowls. He's been to three of them once as an assistant coach, and he's, he's got and the most course, wins without a Super Bowl win. He, he does, and, yeah, and 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 the funny thing is, is like. You look at his quarterback, and Andy's 61, but you look at his quarterback, you go, well, you could be back four or five more times, you know? And it's not that easy, though. You know, I mean, 
he could also be, you know, Pat Mahomes could also become Dan Marino where he went in his second year and never made it back. So you just don't know. When you get to this game, as uh, as Rich McKay said, when the Bucks went to San Diego, I'll never forget that Wednesday, you, you have to win the game. You cannot uh, go there and, and, and lose the Super Bowl. No one will remember. You'll remember. Um, but it's not it's it's not the memory you want. Playing in it is not enough. You have to win this game, and there's just uh, you know there's so much at stake for both these teams. And you know you look at Kyle Shanahan, and he has his own sort of ghost to exercise. Right? He was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons uh, three years ago when they played the New England Patriots and had them twenty eight to three, and you know was throwing the football should have been running it. Um, you know, had a big turnover, uh, had a sack that took him out of field goal range that might have iced the game. And, of course, we know the Patriots came back and wound up with the greatest, you know, comeback in Super Bowl history to win that game in overtime and give Tom Brady his, his you know, at that time I guess it was his, uh, his fifth uh, Super Bowl title. So, you know, Shanahan has learned from that. I mean, he talked about how, you know, he had to put that game behind him and realize that, uh, you know, his career was not over, and, 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 you know, if you ever get back there again in that situation, yeah, run the ball, you learn things about this game. And he's able to anticipate sort of the enormity of the week, right? It's, it's mostly, you know, like he said, if you treat it as something bigger than the game, then it will be. It'll, it'll swallow you. Um, you do recognize that there's a lot more media. I mean, he's not typically talking to people on – Monday night, and then again on Tuesday, and then again on Wednesday, and you know, um, just you know, all the all the media obligations, especially his team. Um, but aside from that, you know, you, you just have to sort of put in your game plan and and go with it. But you know, Shanahan has become um, just really a good, good, solid head coach, and especially an offensive coach. And had a chance to talk to him about his start, which, like so many, boy, it seems like so many of these guys. Um, we know that Tony Dungy had quite the coaching tree, you know, when he was in Tampa Bay. Of course, Herm Edwards and Lovey Smith and Mike Tomlin and Rod Marinelli. Uh, Raheem Morris, you know, was on John Gruden's staff. But, you know, John um, had a lot of guys that became head coaches, including his brother Jay, Sean McVay, who's been to a Super Bowl with the Rams, and, and, and now Shanahan, who's, you know, the head coach of a Super Bowl team with the 49ers. And, it's it's really amazing when you consider that the Bucks have had ten head coaches, or sorry, five head coaches in the last ten years, and all this talent left their building, and they did, uh, outside of Raheem Morris, who was thirty two at the time, and he even had a ten and six season his second year. None of them, you know, they all they all managed to escape. Um, of course, you know, Shanahan was again only twenty five years old out of the University of Texas. He was a teammate of Chris Sims. Funny story about that, um, you know. So Chris Sims is is drafted by the Bucks, and um, he starts to play a little bit when Shanahan comes in two thousand and four, uh, and I want or two thousand yeah two thousand four I believe, and uh, they were such good friends that Shanahan actually played at Texas, but didn't play much. He was a, a wide receiver that had a career you know fourteen catches for like one hundred twenty seven yards or something like that. Um, but they bonded at Texas because here you had Chris Sims, who, you know, whose father, of course, was Phil Sims, quarterback the Giants to a Super Bowl victory, and and Kyle's father, Mike, would, 
go on to win two Super Bowls as head coach of the Broncos. So they both they sort of had this uh, you know this identification with each other and, and, and understood what that pressure was like. But since Kyle couldn't make it as a wide receiver, uh, he had the coaching gene. And you know credit Gruden for giving him his first chance. And you know it was it was interesting listening to him. You got to remember too that back then. Um, that's when, you know, there was no huge facility like there is now, you know, on Martin Luther King. I mean, they were working out of a trailer or a trailer park, if you will, off of run, runway 36 right, you know, in Tampa, uh, right outside the, the runway there and uh, across from uh, what is now International Plaza Mall that wasn't even there uh, in the beginning. But it was so small, uh, you know, the... Um, the meeting rooms, which weren't really meeting rooms for the most part, and then especially the offices. I mean, he didn't have an office per se. Um, he sort of had a desk, if you will, kind of crammed in a corner. It was a closet. And, uh, you know, if they opened a door, um, you know, he couldn't sit back there. I mean, it was it was just so completely crammed. But uh, he said, you know, John Gruden was probably the perfect guy for him to to learn under and to work under simply because he has he had such a, a volume of offense, right? Just any imaginable, you know, route combination and passing plays and, uh, you know, the run game and all of that. But where Kyle said he really benefited was, and his father told him this, he goes, look, if you just go there and you're an offensive quality control and all you do is look at offense, you're not going to learn a damn thing. If you want to be a good offensive play caller and a good offensive coach, what you have to study is defense. You have to learn everything about defense. And so Monty Kiffin and Rod Marinelli and those guys were good enough to Kyle that after he was done, you know, putting out all the scripts and, and, and you know, sort of the grunt work that Gruden assigned him with on offense, um, he would spend a lot of his day and would sort of like lay on the floor in some of those meeting rooms with the defense. And that's where he really came to understand uh, you know, run fits and what the linebackers were doing in the secondary and just all, you know, pass rush and all of this. Uh, and so it, it's really, you know, that that was the beginning. I mean, he was there two years. And then, of course, he went on to Houston, was the offensive coordinator, uh, also with uh, the Browns in Washington until he got the head coaching job in San Francisco. And that's when he hooked up with John Lynch because they were looking for a um, general manager. And, and John just happened to cold call uh you know, Kyle. The interesting thing is, is that Lynch, uh, when Kyle went to the Bucks out of Texas, Lynch had just left like maybe six weeks earlier to because uh, the Bucks failed him in a physical. He wound up signing with the Denver Broncos and went and played for Mike, uh, played for his uh, his dad, and he he only knew him in passing. They really didn't spend a lot of time together, uh, but of course through the broadcasting, when John would come into a city and have the production meetings, he'd spend a lot of time with the coordinators and got to know. Kyle and admire him that way, uh, but they really didn't have that much of a personal relationship. They just kind of missed each other uh, by just a few weeks there at uh, you know with the Buccaneers. So interesting story. So here's Kyle Shanahan talking about his experience under John Gruden with the Buccaneers. Kyle, what did you take from your time in Tampa? Tampa was such a special time for me just uh, to get the chance to go work with John Gruden and be around all the other good coaches on their staff. You know, the first year. Um, you know, I, I spent six months as a GA at UCLA, and then I went to Tampa, which 
John it was the best guy I could have worked for. John ran every play known to man. Um, I was his kind of do boy. I had to draw every single play. I had to break down all the film. It gave me a, a very good introduction to so much offensive scheme. And um, then just to be able to be around those defensive coaches to me was really the difference. You know, um, how well they took care of me. It was such a, you know, being back at one buck, I mean, it was just basically a big trailer. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my office was a closet. Right. Whenever you would open the door, it hit me in my head. Um, it was just like this, and the door was the wrong way, so it hit me every time. I'd find rat droppings on the, my desk when I come in. Um, I'd always walk over to Monty Kiffin's office, who they had a little screen they'd pull out, but it would separate him, Joe Barry, Rod Marinelli, Raheem. Uh, Morris, Mike Tomlin, so all those guys were there, and when I was done with my work with John, I'd always just go sit on the floor in there, they'd always give me all their tip sheets, they'd help me out with everything, and that's what really helped me understand defense and how linebackers fit, understand fronts and things like that, and um, to learn all the plays and stuff from John, and then to learn defense from those guys, it kind of gave me a foundation of how I see football, and wherever I've gone, I've just been able to take that foundation and kind of mold it into whatever, however I see it. So Super Bowl activities and interviews continue today. I'll uh, be both with the Chiefs and the 49ers. We'll have more for you on the Super Bowl all this week, and you can follow that on tampabay.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In the Tampa Bay Times. Meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Lightning got back into action after about a 9- or 10-day break. They were at Dallas against the Stars. They lost in overtime, Steve, 3-2. to two. Didn't play poorly. Stamkos with a couple of goals, but I guess they had a big mistake in overtime. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of been typical with this team, although this year they've done really well when they've had three or more days off. But when they get back from breaks, they tend to, their passes tend to be not as crisp, and, and that's just part mm-hmm. of routine and rhythm and that. But a lot yep. of overpassing, and, and I know Stamkos and Braden Point talked about it after the game that, you know, just too much overpassing, not enough shooting. They gave up, you know, we're trying to move the puck around Ben Bishop instead of just putting shots on net at times against them when they had, you know, some grade A shot chances. Um, you know, but they do get a point in Dallas. They're 12-2-1 and one in their last 15 games. Um, you know, it's I, – I didn't think they played poorly. I, I just thought, you know, maybe they didn't shoot enough. They, had, they gave up a few too many odd man rushes late in the game. Um, as the game mm-hmm. kind of wore on, they maybe took some chances and gave up some odd man rushes, and that cost them. Uh, Brain Point, you know, a, a ill-advised pass in the overtime, which gave away a turnover, uh, which is what Jamie Ben scored on for the game winner. But um, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a good effort. Um, just that, you know, we've seen that a few times this year where they just, you know, making some bad mistakes and they all end up in their net. I thought Vasilevsky played well. Ben Bishop played very well. Um, you know, now they can move on to California. They're at L.A. on Wednesday night, and they've, they're in Anaheim and San Jose over the weekend, Friday and Saturday. Yeah, Bishop has been good against them, um, you know, when they played him in Dallas. And, uh, you know, it's the old adage, right? If you get a point for every every road game, you're, you're happy with that. So 
they they get one in Dallas and move on. Yeah, I mean a road trip. What you know, they always say you want one more point than games played. There you go. So you know, so this is really. I don't know if you count this as a six game road trip because they had two games before the break. Sure. And then now these four, so they're halfway through this, and so they've got you know three points in the first three games of this road trip. Now they go to California where they get the Kings, the Ducks, and the Sharks. A um, couple of those teams, the Kings and, and the Ducks, uh, not doing too hot this season. Um, neither one of those are – they're kind of at the bottom of the – actually, they're the bottom two teams in the Pacific Division. Actually, the, San Jose's the bottom. So they actually – they're playing the, the three worst teams in the Pacific Division this the rest of this week on the road. So, Well, they've got to make, make some uh, strides there and get some points for sure and get cranked up here after the All-Star break. Well, uh, Steve, you mentioned this before the podcast. So now baseball is considering perhaps a couple of changes um, here soon. One of them apparently would be that uh, they're thinking about miking up the umpires during the replay review. I've always been interested because it seems like most of that is handled from New York. In other words, who's actually, I mean, it, it's, it's not the umpires that are actually making the decision, right? Correct, but they never explain anything. It's just kind of... Yeah. You know, uh, it's either confirmed or, or stands yeah. or overturned. Mm-hmm. And so Pedro Gomez is the one who tweeted this today. And Mark Topkin had retweeted it that uh, the umpires will be mic'd up and will tell fans in attendance and those watching on TV, listening on the radio, if the calls are upheld or overturned. They may also explain rules if necessary. So, no, um, more information is king. I think. You know, I, I think it's great. I, you know, I, I, the, one of the things I dislike in the NHL at times is. You know, okay, they get a tripping penalty. The official will come over and tell you it's two minutes for tripping. But then when you send five guys to the box, they don't explain anything. Right. You know, and I'm like, you should be telling us, you know, you should be telling these fans what's going on. I mean, they paid money to be in those seats. Let them know what's happening instead of the PA announcer, you know, a minute into the power play telling you what happened. But I'm all for it. And, and the next one, um, was it Jim Bowden that reported this or mentioned this? That, Jim Bowden uh, put a tweet out that there's growing sentiment to add the DH to the National League, and he says it could happen as early God. as 2021. Why the rush? <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. I mean, seriously, every level of baseball, uh, probably for the last, I don't know, whenever the DH was formed. 1973 league, in the American League. High school, American Legion, college, I mean, Everybody uses the DH, okay, including the American League, except the National League and Major League Baseball. This rule has not made sense to me uh, since they started the DH. I have never understood um, why you're playing essentially two different games, and it is two different games when you know you're giving up outs um, for the most part, other than a few sacrifice bunts and or maybe a walk here and there but but predominantly you know you're giving away you're giving away three or four outs a game uh you know to have the other league with uh you know with a capable hitter at the plate and and it's just it's harder on pitchers it's just harder on everybody you know the runs should be precipitously higher in the American League but no one wants to in my opinion wants to watch a a pitcher try to hit and it also of course, uh, forces the managers to maybe go to the bullpen early um, or at least decide if you're going to lift them for a pinch hitter, that sort of thing. I just never understood this, Steve. I don't, I, somebody smarter than me will have to explain it. It's tradition and baseball is steeped in that. Um, but this is, boy, this is something that's long overdue, in my opinion. There's definitely more strategy 
in the National there League is. because of it. And and when you talk but pace, people pay, come when you talk pace people of, when you talk pace of play, it's a quicker National League generally plays quicker games because they don't have the DH as well. So when you're talking pace of play, length of games, and because, that, there, there's that okay. argument to be made too. I mean, I grew up a National League fan, so I've always liked it. Although the pitchers are, you know, they used to hit a lot better than they do now because they just don't work yeah. on it anymore. I mean, you right. know, back in the day, pitchers worked on their hitting in that. That's um, right. You know, when I, I, I mean, it like I said, I grew, I grew up as <laughs> I, I don't like the DH. I'd rather not have the DH. Although in today's game, where the pitchers aren't practicing, aren't trying to hit. It they makes can't no bunt either, for the most part. Well, and that's the, yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. Is they can't have a bat at all. They yeah. spend zero, almost zero time working on hitting right. at all. So, right. it, it, you know, it, the purpose of it is kind of gone away, in, in mm-hmm. a, of not having the DH. So at this point, I mean, I'm a National League guy. That, you know, as far as growing up, and and I always Cincinnati, loved that. Yeah. I didn't like the DH at all. Um, but in, in today's game, I you know, I, I, although I've told you, I'd rather just get rid of the DH and have eight hitters, and let's you know. Let's let our stars bat more often, but that's yeah. never going to happen because baseball won't go away from nine hitters because they do, they don't like to change. But but if you're you know at this point I'm I'm fine with the DH being in the in the National League as well. Well, and I mean it also affects the playoffs. Obviously, you you know if you're a team in the American mm-hmm. League that's built around the DH and and maybe they're one of your better run producers, you can't use them or you have to play them in a position right. when they go to the National League Park, and, and the opposite is true. But the, you know, the other thing is, like, baseball couldn't adopt this change for this year because National League teams aren't built for DHs. Right, that's right. You know, so it's an unfair advantage unfair. if you, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you say that it's not fair to the American League team when they go to the National League. Well, when the National League team in the playoffs, go, you know, the World Series goes to the American League Park, they're not built for a DH. Either. So, I mean, you know, it gives both, you know, having it different gives both sides an advantage depending on who's home and who's away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I like I like the, the the fact that maybe they're thinking about this. And like I said, uh, you know, couldn't happen too soon for me. I I've just never understood why people want to pay money to see a guy who can't hit stand up there. And, and yeah, but you know, pitchers used takes, to hit better than they three. do today. I know, As but they whole. haven't for so long. And, and the reason is there's been a DH now through youth league on up that and, and I recognize mm-hmm. that most kids that play baseball, you know, it's still. The best athletes, your shortstop, and he also pitches, and he's also your cleanup hitter. I mean, that's typically the way it goes. You don't, you don't, you know, always have to specialize until you get to pro baseball. But once you get there, uh, unless you're, you know, like like, you know, one of you know, the Rays pitcher slash first baseman. I mean, there are some guys now um, that are doing both, but it's still extremely rare. Uh, but they're going to make you specialize. They're going to make you choose, or they'll make the choice for you based on how you do. And, you know, once you put that bat down and you get on the mound, you're, you're just not going to really spend a whole lot of time working on your craft. So um, as far as hitting goes, so I, I just I'm ready for it. I, I, I think it's it's long overdue. And, you know, there'll be for some people, it'll be an opportunity to stay in the big leagues, too, because there are a lot of guys whose defense really isn't that good. It's so they're a liability or they get older, but they can still swing the bat. So, you know. It might create some some chances for them as well. But the other thing the DH does too is, and this hurts the Rays too, is you have to ha- you know essentially the DH becomes another power hitter in your lineup, right. which generally are the higher paid players. With baseball not having a salary cap, there you go. The richer teams can afford better DHs they compared to yep. no the, doubt. You know, so in the National League, your smaller market teams 
are going to be harder mm-hmm. pressed to to you know it's just another challenge in that competition because baseball chooses to have you know a system where the teams aren't playing under the same rules financially with the salary cap like the other leagues have. That's right. No, there's definitely a competitive uh, disadvantage, and so they'd have to have to try to iron that out as well. No, well, baseball, we got baseball lots... doesn't iron that out. They just say deal with it. That's what they've always yeah. done. That's <laughs> true. That's true. We I mean, there, the there's some rev deal. sharing going on, but beyond that, it's deal with it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, well, the Lightning are off today, but they'll head to Los Angeles for their big game on Wednesday night. And then more from Super Bowl 54 in Miami, uh, where we'll be talking to the Chiefs and, of course, the 49ers. Maybe I had a chance to uh, chat a little bit with guys that everyone's familiar with, John Lynch, the GM of the 49ers, and Quan Alexander, a Mike linebacker for the 49ers, who has uh, come back from injury and uh, may play in this game as well. Pretty hyped up about that for Quan Alexander. So for Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody.